I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. Those of you that listen to the show regularly probably know that my partner and I frequently take trips down to Marfa, Texas. If you've never been, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It's my opinion that seeing Donald Judd's work permanently installed at the Chinati Foundation is one of the most pure experiences you can have seeing a work of art. But here's the thing, there's also a lot about Far West Texas that's interesting for reasons entirely separate from Donald Judd. And that brings me to my guest today, writer, curator, and historian Lon Taylor. Lon is a bit of a local celebrity in Marfa. His books, Texas, My Texas, Musings of the Rambling Boy, and most recently, Marfa for the Perplexed, are my first recommendations to anyone interested in the region. That's because Lon's writing offers a most insightful and unique view into the lives of some of the most eccentric Texans. Reading Lon's essays, many of which were originally published between the pages of the Big Ben Sentinel, has opened up a world of stories both big and small. They make a real case for why we should all read a bit of history. And for me, they've changed the way I think about a place I've loved for a long time. If you thought you knew all there was to know about Marfa, I guarantee Lon will show you something new. For someone so influential in Marfa, Lon actually lives one town down the road in Fort Davis, where he retired after a 20-year career as a curator at the Smithsonian. He's completed major projects on the history of furniture in Texas and New Mexico, the myth of the American cowboy, as well as a landmark book on the Star-Spangled Banner. We had our conversation one afternoon at Lon's desk, looking out at the mountains which surround the town. You can see them in the portrait we shot together, which you'll find at our website, www.williamjesslaird.com imageculture or on Instagram, at imageculture, or at William Jess Laird. Finally, I just want to say a quick word about another legendary Texas resident, Boyd Elder, who passed away last week. I met Boyd as a kid the first time I ever came to Marfa with my family. And it's funny that I just had this conversation with Lon, because his work is really about exploring the exceptional people that make a place special. And Boyd was certainly one of those people, and I'm going to miss him. So rest in peace, Boyd, and here I am with Lon Taylor. Remind me one one more time what the what the mountain is that we're sort of it's sitting called under. Sleeping Lion Mountain, and if you look at it from the north, mm-hmm. which is the way the first uh, people who came over the El Paso Road would have seen it, mm-hmm. it looks like a mountain lion with its paws out in front of it and its head down. So it's the right name for it. That's the right name for it. <laughs> so Lon Taylor, thank you so much for having us having us over. Well, it's a pleasure. So tell me, where did you originally grow up? I think well, of you as being Texas, Texas, Texas. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, my father was a highway engineer mm-hmm. for the federal government. And he was from Fort Worth. My mother was from Jacksboro, mm-hmm. which is a little town in west of Fort Worth. But I was actually born in Spartanburg, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. because that's where my father was stationed in 1940. And I I really grew up in the Philippine Islands, because we went to the Philippines in 1947 and stayed there until 1955. And uh, when we came back to the States, Dad was stationed in Fort Worth. So I finished high school in Fort Worth. What was uh, the Philippine Islands like at the t- as a kid? It was wonderful. It was a cool abs- place to grow up. Oh, it was a great place to grow up. Are you writing a book about it? Correct? I am. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, it's a memoir that I've been working on for 20 years. I started out uh, and produced about 300 pages of absolutely impenetrable detail and history. <laughs> That was totally unreadable and unpublishable. <laughs> and uh, last spring, I got hold of a book by a, a Texas writer who nobody knows is a Texas writer, who is a woman named Bonnie Louise Hawkins. Mm. And uh, she's best known as a feminist poet. Mm-hmm. Uh, she died in May, and her obit in the New York Times said that she was born in Abilene, Mm -hmm. and that she had written a book uh, about a trip she took from Albuquerque to Abilene with her mother that was called, I believe it's called Back to Texas. I'm not sure, but I've got the title right. But anyway, I got hold of it and read it, and it was written in short bursts. Uh, Each chapter is five or six pages long. One of them is 11 lines long. Mm -hmm. And... uh, 
I realized that's the way I want to write my book. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't tear up what I'd written, but I started all over again from scratch. And I think I'm about halfway through, and I'm having a wonderful time with it. In a sense, it's kind of like it's kind of like some of your books about the Big Ben region; these sort of small snapshots. Sure. Yeah, 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 Absolutely. yeah. I'm afraid I'm a thousand-word writer, <laughs> yes. not a, a six-hundred-page novelist. But it's kind of perfect. I mean, the, one of the reasons I I recommend your books to a lot of people, and one of the re- like when I give them to people, I always say like, "This is great because you can keep it out and you can sit down and spend five minutes and, and go through one little section, and you're going to learn something amazing." Well, you know? You know, the, the, of course, the thing is, those all started out as newspaper columns. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I'm limited to a thousand words. <laughs> so uh, in, in both the, the books that I've published from those columns, I have rewritten them and expanded them, but they're still short. When did you uh, start writing for the Big Ben Sentinel? Uh, gosh, it, probably 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. When we first moved here, there was a a woman named Kay Burnett uh, who had just moved to Alpine, and she wanted to start a a liberal newspaper Mm -hmm. in Alpine. Big mistake. And uh, (laughs) so she threw a big party. She was the widow of a well-known criminal lawyer named Mm -hmm. Warren Burnett who was a well-known character in the Mm -hmm. Texas bar for many years. And uh, so Kay threw this big party and invited 40 or 50 people from all over the Big Bend and in the middle of the party announced that she was planning on starting a newspaper. And she knew that there was a lot of talent right there in the room and uh, wanted to ask for volunteers to help. And people began putting up their hands and saying, well, I write poetry and I'd love to have my poems published. And I write essays and I'd love to have my essays published. I'm a photographer. Well, my wife worked for a newspaper in Washington for mm-hmm. 30 years. And when we left the party, she said, I don't think this is going to work out. And I said, why not, Didi? She says, I noticed nobody said they wanted to sell advertising. Yeah. And nobody said they wanted to be a reporter. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Kay asked me if I would write a, a column for mm-hmm. the paper. And I thought that would be fun. I've, I've never written anything like that before. And so I agreed to do it. And the paper lasted about a year and a half. I think by the end, it costing her about $40,000 a month (laughs) to publish. And when it folded, I just went to uh, Robert Halpern at the Big Men Sentinel and said, could I bring my column over here? Mm -hmm. And he said, we'd be happy to have you. So I've been doing it. Do you remember what the the first columns were, the first ones that you wrote? Uh, Gosh. I guess, I mean, it doesn't have to be the specific ones. I guess I was, one of the things I was interested in is, you know, when you're doing that sort of regional history, I was curious, like, how do you go about finding these stories? Like, what's the process? Oh, the big bend is full of stories. (laughs) But actually, uh, when I I first made an agreement with Kay, I said, what do you want me to write about? She said, you can write about anything you want to. Mm -hmm. And and so I started out kind of telling family stories and drawing on my own life and experience and I can't even remember the first story I wrote about the Big Ben. Mm-hmm. The, the the first story I wrote about the Big Ben that I'm proudest of uh, was a piece I did in 2008 which must have been four or five years into my, into my writing. But uh, Cecilia Thompson was an elderly lady who was a actually a retired drama professor who lived in uh, Marfa. And she called me one day and asked me if I'd ever heard of the Porvenir Massacre. Mm -hmm. And I said I had not. And she said, well, it was an incident in uh, 1918 during the Border Troubles uh, when the Texas Rangers uh, wiped out the population of a little village down on the river. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have somebody else who wants to go see the site, and I thought you and Dee might like to ride along. So we all met in Marfa. I think there were eight or ten of us. 
and we drove down to Port Venere, which is not easy to get to. Uh, you got to go on a dirt road uh, down to the river and then down the river a little ways, and there's absolutely nothing there uh, because after the killings, the, the survivors of the men who were executed took their bodies across the river mm-hmm. and buried them in Mexico and moved to Mexico and never came back. And uh, so we spent a day down there, uh, very, very interesting. One of the people with us was a, a, a Presidio County deputy sheriff whose family had lived on the river for generations on both sides. And uh, he told us all kinds of stories about things that had happened along the river. So when we came back home, I sat down and wrote, I actually wrote two columns uh, about it. And I ended one of the columns by saying that I thought the Texas Historical Commission ought to erect a marker with the names of the 15 men and boys who had been murdered there on the marker. And that night I got a telephone call from somebody who was obviously very elderly and had a very heavy uh, Mexican accent. And he said he lived in Uvalde and that he had been there the night those people were killed, that he was seven or eight years old and his father and his uncle had been killed. Hmm. And uh, he said, I understand you said in your column that you thought there should be a marker with the names of the murdered men on it. And I said, yes, sir, I did say that. He said, some of us think there ought to be a sign with the names of the murderers on it. And I thought, wow, you know, that was 80 years ago. Powerful. And and, uh, it still hurts. Mm -hmm. So uh, nothing happened, of course. The Presidio County Historical Commission was not interested in erecting a marker. Uh, But I'm very happy to say that uh, finally, 10 years later, uh, that marker is going to be uh, set up. Really? On US 90. Yeah. Wow. When's that, when's that coming? Yeah. Do we, do well, you know? it, it'll be in a couple of months, largely because the woman who has spearheaded it has to uh, go into a hospital for hmm. uh, knee operations, and they're waiting until she gets out. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember the first time you came to this part of the country? Oh, I do, vividly. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, 16. It was the summer of 1956. We had just moved to Fort Worth, and my father had to come out here on uh, U.S. public roads business, mm-hmm. inspecting a highway job, and he uh, took me along with him. And uh, I had never seen a volcanic landscape like this or high desert country. And I just fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. I, I remember looking at Mitre Peak mm-hmm. and thinking that's the way a mountain is supposed to look. I mean, that's the way a little kid would draw a mountain. And uh, I remembered that all the rest of my life. I had not ever come back until, uh, oh, I guess 1993. It's a big gap. Yeah, a, a big gap. Wow. And when you were when you were like young, were you were you interested in in history and oh, writing? I've, I've always been interested in history. Yeah. Were you studying history at the time? I, I had a double major in government and history. What was your idea? Like, what, what were you thinking you'd be doing? Well, at the time? I was thinking of becoming a, a, a university teacher, an mm-hmm. academic. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> actually, I, I can tell you why I didn't do that. <laughs> Late uh, on, me. sure. I, uh, after I graduated from TCU, I had a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship uh-huh. to New York University. And at the time, I was interested in Southeast Asian history. And uh, I was going to write a PhD on an aspect of Philippine history. But back then, if you were going to get a PhD in any of the humanities, you had to pass a written examination in German. (laughs) And this was a holdover from the 1890s when all scholarly literature was written in German. And you weren't already fluent in German at the and time. I, I did not know one word of German. <laughs> sure. Maybe, maybe ja and nein, mm-hmm. you know. But I discovered that the University of Texas at Austin offered a summer course mm-hmm. in how to take that exam. It didn't teach you how to speak German. It didn't even teach you how to read German. It just taught <laughs> told you how, you how to pass, pass the test. that exam. <laughs> so in May of 1962, 
uh, I went down to Austin and signed up for that course. Well, it met every day at 7 a.m. in the morning because none of the classrooms were air-conditioned back mm-hmm. then. And summer courses started at 7 a.m. But I made a huge mistake. I rented a garage apartment next door to Janice Joplin. <laughs> Janice was 18. She had just come to Austin from Port Arthur, uh-huh. and she was living with seven or eight other musicians in this big old rambling wooden building and they had a jam session every night <laughs> that went on until two in the morning and so of course I, they were outdoors they were under a big tree in the yard of that house and so i started going to those jam sessions and about the second week i quit going to class <laughs> and to make a long story short I never went back to graduate school. <laughs> I never got a PhD. I spent four wonderful years in Austin. So uh, uh, Janice was a good was a good influence on yeah, you. Yeah, Janice was a good influence on me. <laughs> what was she like? Well, she was eighteen years old, uh-huh. you know, and and uh, we became good friends because I, in the year that I'd been in New York, I'd lived in the village. I'd heard Bob Dylan. I knew Dave Von Rock, mm-hmm. and these were all people that she had heard about but you know was interested in hearing stories about them mm-hmm. uh and and she was angry and uh, a misfit but uh, she had a wonderful voice mm-hmm. yeah what was new york like to you when you when you first went oh i loved it how old were you i, I was uh, 21 wow yeah. And I'd never been in a place where the bars stayed open until four in the morning. And uh-huh. There were people on the streets all night, uh-huh. and uh, it was wonderful. I'm trying to picture you as a as a twenty year twenty one year old man in New York. Like, <laughs> were, were you a troublemaker? Or? <laughs> no, I wasn't a troublemaker. <laughs> I uh, well, I, I I had a very good time. I, I uh, because I was working in Southeast Asian history, mm-hmm. uh, most of my friends were people who were in Asian studies. Right. And uh, I actually had a, a sort of semi-legal job mm-hmm. with the Indonesian mission to the United Nations uh, because I had a couple of friends who were Indonesian graduate students, and the mission needed somebody to edit the ambassador's uh, speeches and mm-hmm. put them in in good English, so I started hanging around with Indonesians, mm-hmm. and uh, New York was like a, a a a cheap tour of the world. You know, the neighborhood I lived in was all Ukrainian. Where do you uh, remember the street you were on? Oh, St. Mark's Place. Oh, great! One hundred and three yeah. St. Mark's Place. Wow, sure. And it was solid Ukrainian. I uh-huh. mean, even the little kids spoke Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they all went to uh, some kind of, of church school that was on that block. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, the t- instruction was in English, I presume, but everybody spoke Ukrainian. It's in the air. And, and uh, you know, two blocks away there was a Polish neighborhood, and four blocks south there was an Italian neighborhood. And, uh, and growing up in Fort Worth, that's all completely new, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. What was it like coming back? Was that when you went to? Was that when you were in Austin? I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And you never went. You never got your. Uh, you never went to NYU. I, I never finished NYU. I never got a PhD. So what'd you do instead? Well, I I was trying to kind of scrape together a living as a freelance writer. Mm-hmm. I I, uh, I worked for politicians, uh, Democratic you... politicians. Decent <laughs> <was> dad. <laughs> good way to get that in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. sure. I know you you started at a certain point working on these books of Texas furniture. How did that come into your well, life? That that uh, my my professional career has really been as a historian in museums, mm-hmm. and my first museum job uh, was at a historic site called Windale, that's in central Texas near Round Top, and it was a 19th century farmstead. Uh, given to the University of Texas by a Houston philanthropist named Ima Hogg. Mm-hmm. And uh, Miss Hogg was a major collector of American furniture. And uh, in, the ni- in the early 1960s, she got interested in collecting Texas-made furniture. 
And so she had furnished the uh, residential buildings on this farmstead with her collection of Texas furniture. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was hired by the university, I had to be interviewed by Miss Hogg. And uh, so uh, she said to me, now, part of your job, uh, if the university hires you, is going to be writing a book on Texas furniture. And I said, well, Miss Hogg, I don't know anything about furniture. <laughs> I, uh, at the time, I was working for the Texas State Historical mm-hmm. Association in Austin, and I said, I know a little bit about Texas history, but I don't know a thing about furniture. She said, oh, don't worry about that. We've just hired this young man at Bayou Bend to be the curator of my collection of American furniture. And he went to Winter Tour, and he knows all about furniture, and he'll be working with you. So years later, that was a fellow named David Warren. Mm-hmm. And David and I produced that first Texas Furniture book together mm-hmm. in, uh, I guess, 1975. And years later, David told me that when he was interviewed for the job at Bayou Bend, mm-hmm. he was told that part of his work was going to be writing a book on Texas furniture. And he said, well, Miss Hogg, I don't know anything about Texas furniture at Winterture. We only stood in American furniture up to 1840. And Miss Hogg told him, oh, don't worry. We've hired this young man from the Texas <laughs> State Historical Association who knows all about it, and he'll help you. And, in fact, both of us learned all about it from her. Mm-hmm. She was uh, 89, I think, or 88 years old, and she had climbed around under more tables and pulled more drawers out of chests than most curators had because she started collecting in 1921. Well, you must have, it must have been interesting to you because it seems to have preoccupied you for a long time. Well, it took a long time. (laughs) No, that was great fun. If you wound up at the Smithsonian, which you worked for 18 years, 20 years? 18. How did you go from, from working in this in this furniture collection in Round Top, which I also, as a little sidebar, have you done the antique fair there? Oh, yes. I, <laughs> many years ago. I've always wanted to go I to do that. And I was back there about five years ago, and I don't intend to ever go again. <laughs> <laughs> too, too much stuff. How, but how did, you, how did you go from doing this work in furniture uh, to coming to the Smithsonian? Well, actually, most of my work at Wyandale was not with furniture, mm-hmm. but with trying to figure out ways to interpret a 19th century Texas farmstead Mm -hmm. uh, to the public. And I did that for seven years. And uh, then I was offered a job uh, at the Dallas Historical Society uh, who wanted somebody to come and comb through their collection of 40,000 artifacts and uh, do exhibits from those artifacts. And I thought, well, that would be great fun. Mm-hmm. And it would be a chance to work in a what I thought of as a normal museum rather than an open-air museum. Right. And so I took that job, and uh, I did an exhibit. They had a, a huge amount of cowboy equipment, saddles and chaps and just everything you would need, which had been assembled in the 1930s. And... Uh, so I put together an exhibit about uh, a cowboy's equipment and, uh, and how it helped him do his work. But in the last case, this was right after that film Urban Cowboy yeah. came out, you know, and all <laughs> Dallas businessmen wanted to dress like cowboys. Yeah. New York businessmen wanted to be cowboys. And so I had a cousin who was a rancher down on the Gulf Coast in Matagorda County named Voss McCroskey. And I called Voss and said, Voss, I'd like you to take off all the clothes that you have on when you come in out of the pasture tonight and put them in a box and send them to me at the Dallas Historical Society. (laughs) And I can remember he said, you want my boots? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, you know, they got, uh, you know, uh, cow shit on them and I said that's what I want and so he sent me he was a good fellow and he sent me I promised he'd get it back Uh and then I I took $5,000 
and I went to a Western store in Dallas called Cutter Bills, mm-hmm. and I discovered that you could spend $5,000 on a hat yeah. at Cutter Bills. But I put together a, a pretty fancy, you know, urban cowboy wardrobe mm-hmm. at Cutter Bills, and we put them side by side in a case and uh, wrote a label that said, what you see on the left is uh, what the working cowboy wears when he's out in the pasture with his cattle, and what you see on the right is what the urban cowboy wears when he's on the social range. And everybody thought it was great, and one of the visitors who saw it <clears throat> was the director of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress, a mm-hmm. fellow named Alan Jabour. And and I'd never met Alan. I didn't even know there was a Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. But uh, Alan invited me to come to Washington and be a guest curator for an exhibit that the uh, Library of Congress wanted to do about the American cowboy. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea was that, that the holdings of the Library of Congress were so vast that you could just take any subject, no matter how improbable, and comb through the library and find material on that subject. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took a leave of absence from the Dallas Historical Society and went up there and had the best time I've ever had in my life. Just coming in archives? I had a, a fishing license, uh-huh. you know, to go to every collection in the library and say, what do you have here about cowboys? Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the the, uh, the copyright collection was full of old movie posters, uh, theater posters from the 1880s and 90s. There was a whole genre of plays about cowboys before there were cowboy movies. Mm-hmm. The original manuscript for Owen Wister's uh, The Virginian, which is generally considered to be the first Western novel, along with his correspondence with Theodore Roosevelt about uh, the novel. I mean, it was just a a treasure house. So uh, we got some very fine designers called Staples and Charles Mm -hmm. and put together what, in my opinion, is the best exhibit I've ever done called The American Cowboy. Mm-hmm. And it was an enormous hit. Ronald Reagan opened it. Uh, what year was this? This was in 83. Uh, it's funny. I'm wondering if there... I feel like uh, the United States has always had these kind of uh, moments where there's this sort of fascination with the West or with oh, this yeah. idea it's a of the cowboy. Thing. Yeah, and it kind of goes away Definitely. and comes back. Yeah. <clears throat> and actually, that was the theme of the exhibit, was mm-hmm. that over the years, the American public has reshaped the image of the cowboy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to fit current concerns. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's always been more of a myth than anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, there are very few cowboy movies that show anybody doing any cow work. <laughs> you know? do, you have a, do you have a favorite? What's your, what's your favorite yeah, Western film? My favorite film? cowboy movie? Yeah. Well, probably Shane. Uh-huh, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. And that was your first show in D.C.? Yeah. So was that yeah. that was kind of the impetus and, to and move then, there? And then, well, I, I, I'll continue the story. Please. I had applied before I was invited to do that. I had applied for a, a National Endowment for the Humanities grant to write a book on New Mexican furniture mm-hmm. uh, because I was interested in looking at the changes that would take place in one form of material culture in a fairly isolated place over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because museum people are always arguing that objects can tell you more than documents mm-hmm. can. And I wanted to kind of test that theory. <clears throat> so I was awarded that grant while I was in D.C. And so instead of going back to Dallas, which I frankly did not like very much, right. uh, I went to Santa Fe mm-hmm. and uh, spent four years at the Museum of International Folk Art. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, working on that project, which turned into a book and, and an exhibit. And, uh, and I had a very good time doing that because uh, we, we sent out a poster to every post office in New Mexico saying that we were looking for examples of furniture made in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I got to do pretty much what you're doing now, which was to drive all over the state of New Mexico and knock on people's doors and say, I understand you have a chair here that was made by your great-grandfather. 
But when, the, when that project was finished, I was offered a job as the deputy director of the State Museum of New Mexico, which is actually a federation of museums. It uh, includes the Museum of Folk Art, mm-hmm. the Governor's Palace in Santa Fe, the Museum of Fine Arts in Santa Fe, the Indian Museum. And I very foolishly took that job, and I did not realize that uh, New Mexico is like Mexico in that every time a new governor is elected, all upper-level state officials are expected to submit a resignation, even though there's a civil service system. <laughs> yeah. And so a yeah. new governor was elected, Tony Anaya, and uh, Mr. Anaya announced that he was going to fire the top six people at the Museum of New Mexico so that he could replace them with his campaign supporters. <laughs> his cronies. You know, yeah. these, these were professional uh, people. Yeah. So the regents of the museum told the governor he couldn't do that, mm-hmm. that they didn't work for him. They worked for the regents. And so for the next 18 months, it was like being in the trenches with heavy artillery mm-hmm. passing overhead and we, nobody could get any work done. It was it was ridiculous. So I I uh, had made some friends at the Smithsonian, and I called one of them and said, "Isn't there anything I can do up there? I need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> get me out of this uh, this fire." And, uh, yeah. And he said, "Yeah, well, why don't you come up here for an interview?" So I went up and interviewed with Roger Kennedy, mm-hmm. who at that time was the director of the uh, Museum of American History. And he said, well, you know, we're looking for somebody that uh, can come up here and not be connected to any collection at the museum, but help us put together theme exhibits about major themes in American history. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'd really enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. So they hired me, and that's essentially... Uh, what I did for 18 years. What sort of thematic things did you do you work on? The first exhibit that, that I did on my own was the exhibit that was developed to uh, commemorate the Columbian Quincentenary. Well, it was actually about New Mexico, to put it bluntly, because there were two or three of us there at the museum who had been in New Mexico or had roots in New Mexico, and we felt that the, the Museum of American History was really a museum of American history east of the Mississippi and north of the Mason-Dixon line. Right, yeah, yeah. And we wanted to get some southwestern material. Well, I was, I was, one of the things I was curious about is that did they bring you in because they were like, we need to fill this part of our collection out of the, or this part well, of our program? I think out. Roger felt that yeah, way. Yeah, sure. Uh, 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 the Museum of American History is a very strange place. Yeah. And it was essentially a, a federation of... Uh, feudal fiefs organized around collections. And (laughs) curators were very defensive about their collection. There were 14 different systems of registration Mm -hmm. at the the museum because each collection had developed its own, uh, well, you don't need to know about all that. (laughs) (laughs) I I like the classification systems. They're they're pretty interesting. Well, it... it, uh, uh, so uh, anyway, we we did this big exhibit called American Encounters mm-hmm. that uh, focused on how Indian people in New Mexico had dealt with the Spanish who had invaded New Mexico, mm-hmm. and then how the Spanish people had dealt with the Anglo Americans after 1848. And it was it was a great exhibit. We got a lot of good trips to New Mexico out of it. The thing I'm proudest of is that the people that it was about absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Which is probably the hardest group of people to please, right? It I mean, is. Yeah. It definitely is. And uh, we, we actually brought a lowrider automobile to Washington. <laughs> cool. And, uh, and displayed it at the Smithsonian. Very cool. And in the cultural politics of New Mexico, lowriders are considered hoods mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, there was a lot of controversy in the state of New Mexico about mm-hmm. whether it was proper to have a lowrider represent the state. But but the lowriders themselves, the people who built these cars, mm-hmm. 
were ecstatic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's actually, it makes perfect sense that, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a different time too, but to me, it makes perfect sense to have a lowrider in the Smithsonian because it's like, it's like a staple of American car culture. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, there there's been some scholarship about lowriders that have been quite interesting and, and uh, basically a focused on the difference between Anglo kids building hot rods mm-hmm. and... Uh, Mexicano kids building lowriders, mm-hmm. and and one of the main differences is that in Anglo culture, working on hot rods is a a, a exclusively young male activity, mm-hmm. and in Hispanic culture, working on lowriders is a family activity. Uh, girlfriends, wives, sisters uh, get involved in it. Little kids get involved in it. I also think it's an extension of of the folk art traditions that uh, created the the wooden religious images that everybody wants to collect from New Mexico. You know, when I was a little kid in the Philippines, my, my parents were not religious at all, but they allowed me to go to church with our houseboy, who, of mm-hmm. course, was a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. And those old churches in Manila were full of life-size religious images, many of them in glass coffins. Mm-hmm. And I am told that I came home at the age of about eight and said to my mother, do you know that Catholics keep dead people in their churches? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, did you did you like being in Santa Fe? I did. I, you know, you, you wrote an essay that I thought was really interesting. Uh, it was, I think, called, I was talking about it last night, actually, with Tim. Uh, Johnson from the Marfa Book Company, and I think it's called "Why Marfa Will Never Be oh, Like yeah. Santa Fe." Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to give me well, a little recap? Well, I, 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 I was comparing Marfa and and Santa Fe, and when I wrote that, I think I was still a little bit bitter about the politics. Right, of, it be, uh, being run out of town. Santa Fe, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but basically, uh, the thesis was that Santa Fe has attractions for tourists that Marfa can never produce and mm-hmm. that it's got Indian people who, who have always been a big attraction for tourists. It's got skiing. It, it's got uh, 105 good restaurants. <laughs> it's also uh, got a population that's been dealing with tourists for 150 years, and Marfa has none of that. It's a bit more modest. <laughs> well, Mar- Mar- Marfa's a lot more authentic than uh-huh. So when did you start working with the uh, with the Star Spangled Banner? As well, a, as a that project, project started, I think, in 1993. Uh, the the flag had come to the Smithsonian in 1911, and it was donated by the grandson of uh, Colonel George Armistead, who was the commander of Fort McHenry. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the battle. So the Smithsonian had pretty well documented what had happened to it between 1911 and the present day. But they really knew absolutely nothing about its history before it had come to the museum. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Smithsonian had published a little pamphlet about it in the 1940s uh, saying that it had been presented to uh, Colonel Armistead upon his retirement from the Army and had been in the Armistead family ever since. And right after I took this assignment, I got a call from the curator at Fort McHenry, which is a National Park Service site. And uh, she said, I want you to know there's a little problem with that pamphlet. She said, uh, Colonel Armistead didn't, never retired from the Army. He died in service hmm. in, uh, I think, 1816 or 1817. So then the question was, how did he get the flag? Mm-hmm. And uh, I finally concluded he just took it home with him after the, after <laughs> the battle. Yeah. Uh, sure. uh, but, uh, but it's history. I mean, there was essentially a hundred-year gap mm-hmm. uh, in its history. And uh, I, I discovered that uh, Armistead's daughter, who was a very doughty lady named uh, Louisa Armistead Appleton, had had corresponded in the 1870s with a naval historian named George Preble, who had who actually wrote the first history of the United States flag. Now that book was published, I think, in 1873, 
And uh, in the book, he said, he quoted somebody as saying they had seen the Star Spangled Banner at Fort McHenry in 1855. And Mrs. Appleton sat down and wrote him a letter, and, and a rather sharp letter, uh, saying you were totally in error about this in, in 1855. The flag was safely in my attic in Baltimore. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the, there ensued a correspondence between Admiral Preble and Mrs. Appleton uh, that covered about five or six years and consisted of about 30 letters. And uh, Preble's letters to her were in the Appleton Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society, and her letters to him were in the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is only about 30 miles from Boston. So I went up there and spent two weeks reading through those letters Mm -hmm. and uh, found out almost everything anybody had ever wanted to know uh, about the Star Spangled Banner. For instance, there is a, a big... A red chevron stitched to one of the white stripes of the Star Spangled Banner. And for years, people at the Smithsonian and people that are interested in flags had speculated about what that meant and how it got there. Mm-hmm. And we, we actually had a letter in the files from uh, some history professor at some Midwestern university written back in the 1930s uh, pointing out that that was the Greek letter lambda and that the Spartans called themselves in Greek Lacedonians. And uh, is that right? Lacedonians are Indians somewhere in Central America. (laughs) But anyway, it's a word like that that begins with L. And uh, so his theory was that the soldiers at Fort McHenry had sown the Greek letter Lambda on the flag to show that they were going to fight like Spartans. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a letter from... Mrs. Appleton, who says, my mother sewed the red letter A on the white stripe of the flag, intending to spell out the name Armistead Mm -hmm. on it. Because the Armistead family, until the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition of 1876, really regarded that flag just as a family souvenir. Mm-hmm. They didn't think of it as having any national significance. And sure enough, our conservators were able to find the, the needle holes where the crossbar of the A had been, and it had fallen off at, at some point. Uh, we also had a lot of questions about uh, why, uh, for instance, it was about eight feet shorter than it had been originally and why it had all these holes in it. And... Uh, Uh, There was another letter in which she explained that some veteran of the uh, Battle of Fort McHenry had uh, asked to be buried in a strip of it. And so uh, her mother had cut off an eight-foot-wide strip for this guy to be buried in. And uh, and over the years, other people had asked for pieces of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyhow, so those letters really formed the, the core of my research and were the basis for my little book it must be a it must be kind of a crazy thing to to be like read through someone's letters like that i mean that's wonderful yeah it's it's very intimate i imagine well it's it's intimate and i just uh i gained so much affection Mm -hmm. uh for this baltimore lady because there were a lot of stuff in those letters that didn't relate to the flag at all yeah yeah Uh, she uh in spite of the fact that her husband was a member of a very prominent New England family, they owned the Lowell Mills. He was evidently a spendthrift, and she pretty much had to support herself mm-hmm. teaching a girl's school. And she was also a very ardent Southern sympathizer mm-hmm. uh, during the Civil War. At, at one point, she said, uh, Baltimore is bereft of men because all the gentlemen have gone south to join the Confederate Army. And uh, all the... I can't remember the rest of it. But anyway, it it was fun. It was great fun to read those letters. It's funny because you think about it now. I mean, you know, we actually had another uh, uh, person on the show not too long ago who finished a a 15-year biography project on the Deminils in Houston. I I, I looked at that show this morning. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm in the middle of that book. 
Well, oh, Double Vision. Yeah. What do you What do you think about it? I think it's great. Yeah. I think it's terrific. I mean, they're such an interesting family, and but one of the interest, one of the great things that William talked about is this this feeling of like having he had access to the entire family archives. Yeah. So years and years and years of letters. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, it's funny. You know, I don't know if there if future generations of historians are going to have the same luxury. Well, I think people are still writing mm-hmm. letters. I, I I got deeply involved with the Armistead family because right. they're still a prominent family mm-hmm. uh, in Baltimore, and uh, I, I felt like I ended up being a cousin mm-hmm. of the Armisteds. It's funny, like speaking of of cousins and and maybe getting back to Marfa for the perplex for a second. I was talking to Camp at the Chinati Foundation oh, yeah. last night, and he says that you guys are cousins. Yeah, we are. We're distant cousins. <laughs> but learned about it after you'd known each other for oh, yeah. a long yeah. time. I, I learned about it from his mother. How'd yeah. you figure it out? There, there's actually a connection between the Armistead family and uh, Marfa. The current head of the Armistead family, or at least the man who was the head of it in the 1990s, was a Baltimore lawyer, and he had the Armistead family papers in his office, and he invited me to come over and, and go through them. And the Armistead's father had been an aide-de-camp to George Washington during the Revolution. So there were letters in there from Washington. Uh, Armistead's nephew was the Confederate General Lewis Addison Armistead, who was at Gettysburg. There were letters about him. But Armistead's wife came from another old Virginia family named Baylor. And three of her nephews came to Texas in the 1830s. Baylor University is named after one of them. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a fellow named George Baylor, who became a Texas Ranger in the 1860s and 70s and ended up being stationed at San Alisario, just east of El Paso. He married... Uh, the daughter of his ranger captain. And they had a child named Harper Baylor. And Harper Baylor became the first North American bullfighter. I know Uh, we had bullfighters. uh, Yeah. His his mother and father were divorced when he was a young man. And she remarried a railroad man named Lee, who worked in Mexico. And so this little boy became Harper Baylor Lee and grew up in Mexico and uh, decided he wanted to become a, a professional bullfighter and did. And uh, fought in uh, 1908, 1909 and, and retired and married a North American girl. Well, his grandfather was a man named James Buchanan Gillette, who uh, was a very famous Texas Ranger wrote a book called Six Years Among the Texas Rangers and owned the Barrel Spring Ranch just west of Marfa. Mm -hmm. And so Harper Baylor Lee became the manager of the Barrel Springs Ranch. So here I am in this big townhouse office in Baltimore going through these family papers, and here's a typewritten letter on a letterhead that says Harper B. Lee. Matador de Toros, <laughs> and an address in Zacatecas. And it's written in English and was written to one of the Armisteds and says, Dear Sir, I understand from my mother's relations that we have some connection with the Armistead family and, and the Star Spangled Banner. And I would certainly be interested in knowing more about this. Mm-hmm. And I yanked that letter out of the pile and said, I want a Xerox of this. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy could not imagine why when I had letters from George Washington, you know. Yeah. I wanted this letter with a Spanish letterhead about a bullfighter. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you retired from the Smithsonian, why did why was it Fort Davis that you came to? Well, as I said, I'd been here earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh in 1993, I had to come back out to the Big Bend on Smithsonian business. Mm-hmm. I came to a conference at, at Sol Ross in Alpine. What were you doing? And uh, Well, uh, they have that annual cowboy poetry gathering. Oh, yeah. And the Smithsonian <laughs> was thinking about doing some, some kind of public program about cowboys. And so I got assigned to go around and visit various cowboy poetry 
gatherings. Mm-hmm. But it was a beautiful spring weekend, and on the way back to Midland, I stopped in the Fort Davis drugstore to get breakfast and called my wife and said, Dee Dee, just sell the apartment, quit your job, get down here. This is the place. Mm-hmm. So when I got back to D.C., Dee Dee said, I want to see this place that you like so much. And, and we had decided we got married in middle age. I, I was 48 and Dee Dee was 40. And uh, we decided when we got married that if we could afford it, that I would retire when I was 62 Mm -hmm. and she'd retire when she was 55. So we were thinking about places to retire to. So the next year, we took a three-week vacation in the Big Bend. And of all the places we visited, Fort Davis was the one we liked best because of that. (laughs) Because of these mountains we're sitting Because of the topography. You know, Marfa was flat Mm -hmm. and... uh, Franklin, not very interesting in mm-hmm. 1993. <laughs> uh, Alpine just looked like any other Midwestern railroad town. Did you know? Did you know Donald Judd back back in '93? Oh no, I, I'd never heard of Donald Judd. Oh yeah, until, <laughs> until we moved out here. What do you What do you think of his work? I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I started out being a doubter uh, because I'll tell you the truth: as I have aged, my interest in art has pretty much narrowed. Mm-hmm to paintings done by Frenchman and Mary Cassatt between 1860 and 1890. (laughs) That's pretty pretty narrow. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I like Impressionist paintings. Mm -hmm. uh, But uh, I was a scoffer about Donald Judd until I walked into that artillery shed one morning Mm -hmm. and saw those aluminum boxes all lined up, and it made me a convert. I think you'd be happy to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lon Taylor, thank you so much for having us. Well, really appreciate thank it. you so much for visiting with me. I've enjoyed it. I'd like to thank Lon and Dee Dee for having us by their home. I'd also like to thank all the staff and volunteers at the Chinati Foundation, Jenny Moore, Caitlin Murray, Tim Johnson, Buck Johnston, Camp Bosworth, Elise Peppel, and Marfa Public Radio. Of course, a final thank you to Boyd Elder for everything you gave to Marfa. This show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. Find us on Instagram at William Jess Laird and at Image Culture, as well as at our website, williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture, where you can see my portraits of all of our guests. If you like the show, it makes a big difference if you subscribe, leave a review, or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next week.